Hi, and welcome to another edition of uh, Nucleus Wealth Investment Insights. Uh, today, we're having a look at inflation. Uh, so just a quick reminder, nothing you hear today is uh, personal advice, still general. Uh, if you do want personal advice, um, you can book a meeting with us either online or, or give us a call and, and book in to uh, to speak to a planner or um, uh, yeah, or, or get some help elsewhere. So I think the main thing we wanted to talk about in terms of inflation um, was this idea that We've had this boom in inflation. Now inflation, we're, we're coming pretty sharply down the other side of that. And the question is whether the pendulum is going to swing too far in the opposite direction. Uh, and then we've obviously seen some some numbers come through from Australia um, in in the past week. And, and they were uh, a few concerning signs there. So we wanted to be, dig a little bit deeper into that. Uh, and so on the podcast this week, uh, we've got myself. We, uh, we also have a David Llewellyn-Smith, our uh, chief strategist for the fund. Hi, David. How are you going? I'm in. Good to see you. You too. Uh, and um, yeah, so the question I have okay. is, uh, so we might, yeah, so we'll jump straight into the uh, straight into the slide deck. So, so the idea is, um, yeah, but we we wanted to look at this idea is 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 inflation crashing, uh, and we wanted to sort of approach it from uh, a few different directions. One is sort of the global inflation um, part and then sort of moving on to the Australian inflation uh, and then what are the outlook and the risks and, and what does that mean for, for investment? So uh, Dave, we'll start with you, I guess, on, on some of the global thoughts. Sure. Uh, so if you want to flip over to your first chart there, Damo. Yep. Um, oh, you've got a, you know, beautiful chart of... Uh, effectively global core inflation from Goldman Sachs. And uh, as of December, um, those who can see the chart will notice that uh, global core inflation is well and truly back within central bank ranges, uh, 2 to 3%, in fact, between 1% and 2% uh, on kind of um, month or quarterly annualised numbers. So, uh, you know, we've really had this... Uh, pretty quick pandemic surge and an even faster dump in inflation, which will uh, raise, does raise one question that, that I'll address later in the presentation, which is, was it, was it always temporary? And was all this just the supply side effects pandemic uh, or not? And, but certainly whether or not that's the case, um, core inflation just about everywhere has um, collapsed back into ranges. And so, you are starting to see lots of discussion about monetary easing as a result. Yep, and I might just let me just give a quick uh, update on people for for what core inflation. So core inflation uh, typically is the inflation that excludes food and energy prices because they're they're both quite volatile. Having said that, um, uh, yeah, so we've got a chart up here just sort of showing that the core inflation was sort of between one and two percent for you know the decade prior to twenty twenty. Um, had a bit of a fall into deflation as the pandemic hit and then took off um, sort of hitting 6 or 7% on a global basis before falling back down to, to yeah, sort of 2%-ish now. Uh, and I guess the issue is, um, so so food and, and energy, because they are so volatile, that's why they get excluded. And, and also that uh, the, the interest rates aren't really going to affect it. So if you have a bad... Um, uh, Bad weather and food prices spike. Well, well, raising interest rates isn't gonna isn't gonna bring them down. Uh, yeah. 
And so the idea, um, and, and but the only thing I guess I'd put over the top of that is, is they actually made this worse. So both food and and energy prices, as inflation was rising, they 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 spiked as well. So if you look at these sort of ex exos, the, the the rise was even higher, and they're crashing um, uh, even further. So yeah, yeah. So it makes makes things worse on both directions. Yes. So to to cut that into sort of broad categories. Uh, global goods inflation is very disinflationary in some jurisdictions. is in fact deflationary, the price of the fall. Services are proving to be a little more sticky, but are pretty clearly on a glide path lower now. And that's, that varies a lot from country to country, but as a general statement, it's roughly true. And energy, which... You know, got a lift out of the pan into the pandemic, and then an absolute rip, ripping um, tear following the Ukraine war uh, has completely collapsed. Um, so, oil's back, you know, in the mid seventies on WTI, and I'm pushing down towards the uh, break-even levels for US shale. Not there yet, but kind of creeping down that way which is suggesting, you know, pressure at the margins on, on supply because there's just so much oil. Well, and, 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 and at the same time, you've had OPEC cutting uh, production. So, that's right. So you cut 3 million barrels in the last year and it's made zero difference. Okay. Well, it probably so, has made a difference, but it's the difference between well, yes, the price. Yeah. Well, oil's not 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, uh, oil's been... A good story. Uh, we'll come back to whether that's going to remain the case when we look at the Middle East a bit later. Um, gas is a phenomenal story for everybody. That's uh, literally has collapsed back to pre-pandemic prices. Uh, it's great for everyone except Australia, of course, which has its gas cartel. Uh, so we're still paying through the nose, even if you know it's less bleeding than it was. Uh, and coal is well and truly in retreat too. That's thermal coal. So. Wow, how did we get? Like, was it four hundred dollars for thermal coal? I can't remember. Anyway, we're down now, like to a sort of one hundred and ten, one hundred and fifteen, which is still quite high for coal traditionally. And I expect that to keep falling back to eighty dollars or so, but definitely on the way down, uh, and likely to keep falling within seasonal patterns. So, <clears throat> energy has turned it for the last twelve months, and especially the last three to six, has turned into a very inflationary story. Uh, and that's complementing goods and services are, are sort of, you know, steadily coming down. So global inflation very much on track. Anything you want to add to that demo before? We... Yeah, well, yeah, um, but on the goods side. So you've, we spoke a little bit about, about the deflation, but um, particularly uh, sort of coming out of China, we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen very weak growth in China and we're seeing uh, deflation. Um, so, so China of all the countries, uh, you know, is... is is the one that never really had a, a an inflation problem at all, and now they've got a deflation problem in that prices are sort of going backwards by, you know, two or three percent per annum, uh, and, and so they've uh, and they're pumped they're pumping a lot of support from a government perspective into into corporates, and so it's hard to see that that goods deflation turning around in the short term. So and 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 on top of that as well, there was so much money spent on whether it's transport or or um, or just new production facilities. Uh, because of the price rises as we saw in in the pandemic, <clears throat> that the next couple of years uh, is you know there's there's a, there's a fair bit of that goods inflation baked in, and so yeah, I should add as well, 
uh, on the energy side, all of the greenflation that we saw through the pandemic is in full reverse as well. So, you know, all of the new energies, solar and wind and various others are all retreating swiftly and all the, the commodity inputs have all cratered. So that's also a good news story for energy. Yeah, and, and particularly, actually, that's a really great, a good point, is that, that, that say, let's say you looked at solar or wind or whatever it was, whatever components you were looking at, um, they, they've had this long trend down over, over, over time and then they had this blip up where um, there's a sort of first break in that, in that series we've seen in, in decades. But um, the prices have now come crashing down. So if you actually just extended the the, the prior trend, it's pretty clear that um, you, we're still getting the, the the cost cuts in terms of savings, uh, in terms of cost savings in solar and batteries and all these other technologies. Yeah. As you know, first of all, um, there's more production of it, so so it drives costs down when you when you can produce whatever a million a million units rather than you know eight hundred thousand units, you, you, your unit cost comes down. And then secondly, uh, just technological, just incremental technological changes that just keep uh, creeping into that. And so, um, yeah, it's sort of very much back on that back on that same trend. Yeah. So the outlook is, if we if we um, if we look at this, you know, Sirtis Paribus, like nothing else changing, the outlook is good for global inflation. Now we'll look, and we'll take a look at. The risks to that um, further on into the presentation, uh, but you know, if we don't have another accident, another pandemic, another war, uh, then the outlook's pretty good. And do you want to flip to? We'll be back with the investment insights very shortly. Nucleus Wealth is an active and passive investment manager. If you like what you're hearing and want some help with investing, we can do it for you via our active portfolios. Our tactical and core portfolios use the insights shared in this podcast to construct and manage your investment. We blend tactical portfolios to offer our combinations of international shares, Australian shares, government bonds, and cash. We vary the asset allocation with the goal of protecting your capital in times of market uncertainty. We also have active international and Australian share portfolios. These are chosen using our quality and value investment philosophy. You can find out more at nucleuswealth.com. Now back to the show. Right. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so, so it's a sort of broad picture. We will dig a bit more into some of the, um, some of the info or some of the, dig a little bit more into some of those components, but, um, we probably should do a quick summary of what's happening in Australia at the moment in terms of inflation and where the differences are. So we just had the, uh, third quarter, sorry, fourth quarter numbers come out. Uh, that's right. And you know, they were, they were fantastically weak, uh, yesterday's CPI numbers which uh, was no big surprise for us, but did shock the market a little. Uh, you know, there's quite a lot of goods um, disinflation, and in fact, a lot goods were virtually deflationary. Uh, interestingly, services are falling fast now, like faster than overseas, uh, which is which is uh, part of a conclusion I will draw a bit later, basically, but. Uh, services inflation is also evaporating in Australia, which is terrific news. Uh, <clears throat> the energy story, which has been a, been terrible for the last since the Ukraine war, pretty much, um, uh, is also turning. Um, uh, petrol prices have fallen year on year at a pretty good clip. Um, more to the point, even despite Australia's you know horrible regulatory failures of gas. 
Uh, the price has, you know, spiked to a sort of seventy dollars a gigajoule. Is back down to twelve, and for gas, and that has that and some new renewables and and capping the coal price, etc., has all created the wholesale electricity price as well as the gas price, uh, and that <clears throat> uh, combined with subsidies from the federal government and some state government as well has actually now turned into disinflation for utility bills in Q4. Uh, I expect that will continue with more subsidies and then we'll start to see bill cuts uh, prop up from those falling wholesale prices around July. Mm. Uh, yeah. And the, uh, so it's sort of, I think we've spoken about this in the past is that, that uh, we've, we've effectively surrendered our, our um, uh, energy policy to the world market in terms of Eastern, all the Eastern states at least. And so they ran into this massive problem, obviously, that we all, we've got, we were paying European prices almost for, for Australian gas. Um, but now the, you know, we're seeing the other side of that. And, and the other, I guess the other big point for the, for, um, global gas is that, is that what we're looking at is, um, coming out of the U S is they're doubling their, their exports, uh, of gas. So over the next, um, I think it's over the next two years, might, might be the next three, but it's certainly, um, uh, yeah. They're just like increasing every year. There's a or every few months. There's like a, a new LNG um, uh, plant coming on in the US, and so uh, the, the the there's likely to be further price falls from that in terms of yeah the- yeah. I mean, there's a big dollop coming from Qatar as well, and Mozambique and, and others. There's a an almighty expansion. Yeah. So, so that's, that that's going to be a double whammy for Australia because. You know, Western gas exports, where we actually make money, um, will get clubbed on lower international prices. Um, <clears throat> whereas Eastern gas prices won't fall as much as they should, and so we'll we'll still have the gas cartel gouging the east, but we'll lose what benefit we do get it in in the west. Yeah, so but, but having said that, you know, I guess overall we make so little from the Australian, we, we charge so little to the gas in terms of royalties that, that yeah, it's, it's, it's true. You know, we spoke about the irony being the problem was high gas prices is bad for Australia, um, despite being one of the world's largest exporters. Um, yeah. And by the same token, I, I think we'll find that lower gas prices is actually, you know, the, yeah, okay. the benefits well, to the, the broader economy are offset by the losses. Yeah, more so, than losses. So maybe not get bogged down in that or yeah, yeah, okay. in all day, but... Probably the key point to make about yesterday's CPI result is basically there's deflation everywhere. Uh, well, this is quite a strong disinflation in everything. Uh, but even food has started started to look much weaker, um, and we'll probably see more of that as we get, I think, a little bit of a political response from the supermarkets to the pressures coming their way. Uh, and we've put in a, a food chart showing that there are big falls in wholesale food food prices already to pass through. Um, yeah. But but um, there's just loads of disinflation in this, except in the housing segment, which is alboflation. That's that's dominant. Yeah. Before we get off the food, I think it is worth noting on the food part is um, the we've seen uh, deflation in, in wholesale food prices, and that's the chart I've got up, up showing at the moment. So that's, yeah. the wholesale food prices have, have been falling for, for some time now. Uh, and that hasn't really flown through to, to supermarkets. The question is now, um, as supermarkets see all these input costs fall away, 
do they try and hold on to these margins and how long can they do it for? Um, yeah, as you said, we've, we've seen government come out to to uh, wrap them over the knuckles for, for holding on to too much of it. Uh, there's probably, there's certainly at least some truth in that, but but it probably also goes a fair way up the supply chain. Uh, I think there's, I think from, from my view is, uh, yeah, supermarkets are, holding on to a little bit the the wholesalers at the next level are holding on to a little bit the um uh the, the the manufacturers are trying to hold on to a little bit but as uh as prices fall there's this and demands weak which is what we're seeing you just start getting people start to cave and so it's like yeah so you know i pull my prices up by 20 percent um because i had my input costs for um rise now my input costs have fallen back to normal and i'm going to try and hold on to that 20 percent as long as i can but then one of my competitors who's losing market share or whatever it is starts dropping prices and I have to drop prices and you sort of end up in that in that um, spiral. So yeah, Australia's got lots of oligopolies so it's, so it's hard, much harder for that to happen in Australia. But um, yeah, I do think you, I do think we will see that. Having said that, um, it's been, it's been some time before, you know, without seeing that so far. So, so. I mean, the key area where we, where Australia has kind of been uh, standing out has been in this Alwell inflation area, which is which has been the the energy blunders that we've just described, plus the immigration blunders, which was to pour too many people in and spike rents uh, as well as building costs, and <clears throat> we can still see that that's uh, on this release. Um, uh, roughly a third of it is still almoflation in the fourth quarter, but utilities are starting to come off, uh, so that's going to diminish. I do expect the others, however, to remain quite strong: rents and house purchases. So there is this 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 little kernel of mismanaged um, uh, economic inflation, which is going to remain, which means that Australian inflation probably will be a little higher than it was pre-pandemic. Uh, thanks, thanks largely to to Albo, and you can thank him at your leisure when you get to the ballot box, if you so please. So, um, the the story basically is how fast uh, Australian inflation is is falling. Um, uh, like we're coming out of the pandemic, the Australian side business cycle was about six months behind the rest of the world because we had these lockdowns. But, but I, I put it to you, to uh, listeners today that we've actually accelerated, uh, decelerated very quickly in the last kind of quarter or two uh, and and to the downside and, and actually slowed more than most other developed markets. Largely, I think, because, you know, the RBA was very aggressive and, you know, we have floating interest rate mortgages, so... Uh, you know, the pass through for interest rates is much quicker and much more powerful in the Australian economy. And even though our rates didn't go anywhere near as high, we had this fixed rate reset that was amplifying what the RBA was doing. And so it got more debt as well. Oh, we got a lot more debt in households. And so it rather looks like Australian households crumbled into the end of the, the year, uh, you know, especially with the last rate hike in November, which I think looks like in retrospect was a mistake if not a few of them before that. Uh, and so, you know, Australian inf uh, disinflation is accelerating really fast to the downside. And we've gone from being the inflation standout 
kind of mid last year to suddenly being the disinflation leader. And we're going to see, uh, I think, more of that um, if if that proves to be the case that the economy is more or less stalled because, you know, we'll just be seeing rising unemployment, um, falling capacity utilisation uh, and excess supply and things, especially anything, you know, kind of consumer facing. Um, and so we'll come back to what the implications of that are, but that's 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 kind of my read on on what's happening with Australian inflation right now. Can I, can I actually talk as well, if we broke it into the different components, you sort of go, okay, on the goods inflation, okay, we've got goods deflating globally. Uh, Australia is largely, um, we, we, we don't produce much ourselves, so, so that's largely going to flow through unless we saw the Aussie dollar really tank. Then you might get a short term. But but yeah, so the goods deflation sort of seems to be locked in. On the services side, a lot of the services is driven by wages growth. Uh, and we've never we haven't seen the, the the wages growth that they've seen in the US uh, or, or the UK because we're pouring in our view anyway the the reason why is because we're pouring so many people in um, that you've got this lots of extra supply of workers and so that keeps wages growth down so so you're looking at an economy where services growth the so services inflation um, is you know probably naturally going to be a little bit weaker because we because we our wage growth has never been that strong. Uh, and then, yeah, and the, and the good side. And then on the flip side, you've had the, I guess, a, a bigger cycle in energy than, than you probably should have had. Uh, for you know, Europe had this big cycle in energy where the prices went sky high and now they, then they crashed. Um, the US and other well, most other countries didn't see that same, they saw the prices go up, but they didn't see the same magnitude. Uh, Australia, we saw the magnitude. And so we've sort of, we're coming on the downside of that. And then the final one of the housing, that's the one where we're seeing more housing inflation than what you're seeing elsewhere. And the US has started to turn negative on this and, and a lot of other, you know, Europe and, and the UK and, and other countries are, are quite weak. But because of the uh, because of the immigration, uh, that seems to be set to be to be higher within Australia than what we're seeing overseas. Is that yeah. So we've probably shift shift to the outlook at this point, the outlook and risks. Uh, so, you know, we don't see any real change in the patterns. So, uh, you know, as the base case, so more goods, food, services, disinflation is on the way. Uh, within an environment in which you have a strong US economy, or not as strong, it should certainly slow from last year, but still stronger than elsewhere, which will keep the US dollar firm. Uh, and, and that is quite disinflationary for the world. Um, you know, China is clearly in a structural adjustment. No matter what they do, they can't get out of it. It is a true bear market going on in most of their asset markets. Um, we know that its property market is is irretrievably deflating. Uh, and this has already crushed uh, a lot of commodity prices, including um, a lot of the demand shock is from China in oil, uh, certainly in gas and the green metals. And I think it's only a matter of time before it absorbs all of coal and iron ore and the bulk commodities as well, um, as this thing just implodes relentlessly. And so that gives us, you know, this headwind count for inflation out of China for the next, pick a number, forever. But, you know, quite heavily for the next three to five years. And, and as we, you know, get, pushed forward into this AI revolution, it's not, why not? 
you know, that far away from starting to see job losses on that front either. Um, and so, you know, it's still a fairly deflationary setup fundamentally. We could go on about demographics and debt and, and other things, but, uh, you know, the, the notion that we're into like a dramatically higher inflationary environment for the globe, we think is, is wrong. It's probably going to be a little bit higher than it was pre pandemic. Um, the U.S. in particular, its labor market is very strong and it has a worker shortage with a lot of retirements during the pandemic. Uh, and so it's going to have stronger wages. And that's a good thing um, that we've got more inflation because we didn't have enough for like 10 years up leading up to the pandemic. Uh, but it doesn't look dramatic to us uh, and is unlikely to result in a rerun of of uh you know, this catastrophic spike similar to what happened in the 1970s. Unless, and this is where the risks come in, and the clearest risk is obviously um, coming out of the Middle East. Unless we had dramatic escalation in tensions in the Middle East, which we see as a risk case. In fact, I mostly see the war such as it is uh, as an upside case for markets, because I don't think Israel can sustain it for much longer. Uh, and so we're going to need to come to some, you know, terms of peace before very long, which would pull some of the premiums out of energy prices and things. Actually, we should, um, I should just discuss why that why that case is, Dave. So so the idea there is that um, the Israeli army is is very different to, to a lot of other standing armies insofar as they use a huge proportion. There's There's... Uh, a huge proportion of the of the Israeli population uh, are reservists, and and they've all been drawn in, and so in a way, it's a bit like a pandemic where all of a sudden there's all these people who are working in productive jobs, who um, have, are no longer working in productive jobs, and now they're doing something else, whether it be you know locked in at home or or, or out fighting, or, or at least on on um, you know on, on in barracks somewhere, and so uh, and and the Israeli army is very much set up around that is is that. Uh, they they want they they're set up to fight quite swift short wars. Uh, they're not sort of the, um, set up to 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 uh, set to fight like a Ukraine Russia type ground in type war. That would that would actually be devastating for the for the Israeli uh, economy because you're going to have so many of the the soldiers who who weren't naturally part of the army. And so um, yeah, there is sort of this uh, relative to other countries, there is sort of more of a deadline for them in terms of. Um, in terms of the way that 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 was looking to be fought, yeah. So we just need to to Netanyahu get over himself, and and then we might get some 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 kind of settlement. So I would think that if when we get there, then most of the proxy war, you know, this this spot fire stuff that's going on around the Middle East Middle East region would just go away. Um, so the Houthis, of course, the tax in Syria, um, Iraq. Uh, in, in some wacky stuff going on between Iran and Pakistan, and most of that would just diminish, I think, and and quietly disappear um, if we get get some sort of you know peace accords coming out of the conflict. Uh, depending on what it is, of course, uh, you know, it won't, would need to satisfy the interests of Iran in some manner for it to sit on these proxies that it's developed. Uh, but you know, this is. This is why I see this more of as an up. Uh, I see the the bigger risk is upside from the wall than down. But of course, 
if it does go wrong, which can always happen, it can slip out of control. You get a, you know, an asymmetric attack from somebody or other who kills a lot of Americans. The U.S. overreacts and heavens above, bombs Tehran, and you know the Straits of Hormuz close, and then uh, you're into into all sorts of you know inflationary consequences and energy shock and what have you. So, not saying that that can't happen. Certainly can. Uh, it's not really in anyone's interests for it to happen, and so states would generally act according to those interests. Yeah. Uh, and so, a few things I just wanted just to highlight as well, just before we go dig too big. Uh, too much further into that is so if you're looking at a scenario where um, Iran is yeah is is sort of at low levels you know getting its proxies to to do various things same as what it's doing at the moment and, and disrupting the Red Sea uh, and and uh, ships through there that doesn't add a lot to to inflation so there's I think it's ten fifteen percent of global shipping goes through there uh, it it'll add a little bit sort of up to sort of five percent to to energy prices that are going from, um, so say Saudi Arabia through into Europe, uh, it'll add a little bit more to some of the Russian prices as well because the Russian ships that are going the other direction, um, taking Russian oil to, to India or or, uh, or China, uh, and then you so so it's not but there's not it's not a huge amount I guess is what is where I'm getting to you add, need to add some extra time into it, uh, and then same for the uh, same for goods. You know, from China, effectively from China to, to Europe, and depending upon the price of the goods, you know the the the, the cheaper goods will will have a bigger percentage increase, and the, the more expensive goods will have a smaller because it's basically, um, yeah, it's how much you can fit on a ship and how, how long it takes. So there's another week or two weeks um, that you'll need for those ships to come through. But it's not the end of the world. It's not like a. I think for me there was this, uh, you know, the 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 picture of that ship getting stuck in uh, the Suez Canal during the whole pandemic and during that whole inflation spike was sort of, you know, was, was looked upon as saying, Hey, you know, ship got stuck for a week and, and stopped all this, all this traffic and therefore inflation went ballistic. It was like, no, no, that was the, that was the sprinkles on top of the icing on top of the cake. There was all, we were already going through this massive inventory issue and lack of ships and, and, and extra uh, goods demand. And that was just the, the final straw, so to speak, that, that sort of shoved inflation that little bit higher. We're in the opposite case now where we've got falling, we've got goods deflation and we've also got um, uh, this huge wave of new shipping coming on. So so the, the problem of saying, okay, we need, we're going to need sh more ships because um, ships are going to have to effectively spend more time in the ocean. Well, there's a wave of new ships coming on. So that's not a, that's not as much of an issue. And a lot of those ships were, were, were a lot of the shipbuilding builders were actually quite concerned. Um, or sorry, the people that had bought the ships were quite concerned going, we ordered all these ships when, when uh, you know, three years ago, when shipping rates were high, they're all tanked now, and now we're getting, you know, we're getting delivery of all these new ships just as as we're into these quite low prices. So, so yeah, so so my on my view on that that the um, the pricing there is um, uh, there's not a lot of inflation risk on 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 the sort of uh, on that. There is some risk in terms of Egypt, like Egypt's lost a lot of its um, a lot of its revenue comes through there, and so there's possibly more. In political in, uh, instability that might be coming out of, out of out of that area, but on its own, there's not um, you know there's not a huge inflation risk. As Dave said though, the the risk come if, if Iran gets involved in the conflict and starts to cut off oil and particularly um, Saudi Arabian oil coming out of um, uh, the Middle East, that would then yeah cause some some inflationary problems. Yeah, well, that that would be immense shock. So yeah, uh, <clears throat> I mean I think I read 
Goldman suggested. Uh, I think uh, as things stand, it adds like 0.1 to inflation in the US. Yeah. Um, and in Europe, about 50 basis points. So because it's more affected by the Suez. So um, half a percent in Europe and, and, well, 50 basis point in Europe, 10 basis points in the US, probably similar in Australia. So it's not meaningful. Yeah. And, and it might be as well that this is the, you know, the, 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 the 50 basis points it adds is actually more that you just, the deflation isn't as bad as what it might have otherwise. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's rather than having a, you know, rather yeah. than a Europe printing at uh, minus uh, 1%, uh, they might have. Uh, might the other point is, as long as central banks are satisfied that their core inflation is coming down, then they'll look through that stuff anyway. That's why they have the core inflation measure to, to, uh, to you know, um, peel back volatile issues like this one. Now, so fingers crossed we get a decent, decent outcome from the war and it's all okay. Um, <clears throat> so turning to us the Australian inflation outlook, so we've, we've kind of touched on this already, but basically we think uh, terrible macro management has got um, Australia doing the precise opposite to what you would do if you wanted to lift living standards for most people. And that is, you know, it's crushed its supply side for consumers uh, with immigration. So, and was energy too, but that's coming off. So, you know, what that means is there's strong household inflation and weak wages which is just a formula to send everyone backwards. Uh, and that's the complete opposite of what we have in the US, where we have, you know, uh, quite weak um, household inflation and strongly rising wages and real real gains now, which is one of the reasons that the, the economy there is proving so resilient. Uh, <clears throat> so the US and Australian household sectors, which comprise, you know, 70% of the respective co uh, economies, are going in completely opposite directions. Um, the Australian one is is uh, is being bashed to death, and the US, uh, you know, the, the supposedly the home the home of uh, freewheeling capitalism and and uh, wage crushing corporations is actually going going gangbusters for workers. So that means that the US output gap, that is the gap between supply and demand, basically, in the US is much tighter. In, into 2024 than it is in Australia, uh, and that's going to continue. The Australian output gap or capacity utilisation uh, is going to uh, continue to loosen in Australia as we see immigration uh, lift unemployment, uh, which is going to weigh on consumption further. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me, and I, I think really think we're seeing a very hard, sharp leading edge of this in all of the Q4 data from last year. So, and a shocking Christmas retail sales number, even allowing for Black Friday pull forward and stuff was still terrible. Um, we had a NAB survey showing uh, immense deflation in retail and uh, and all sorts of uh, loosening in different sectors, especially around households. We had a terrible jobs pull report for December, which showed, uh, you know, shocked the market, showed like 70,000 jobs disappearing, job, jobs growth. We didn't see a big rise in art employment only because a lot of people dropped out of looking for work. But, you know, in all of the private surveys that we watch very closely and are very good, arguably better than the ABS data on the jobs market, 
are showing, you know, very swift rises in the number of job applicants per position. Uh, and so, you know, unemployment is going to rise and rise meaningfully um, immediately ahead. We had a terrible CPI for December or a great CPI for December, you know, heavily um, reduced. Uh, and then on, on the back of all that, if you accept that you've got a consumer that's gasping for air moving into the end of last year, then the consequence of that, and this this is really uh, one plus one equals two, this always happens, you're going to see business investment drop coming into 2024. Uh, and so, you know, you really start to slow the economy. Now, I don't say we're going to go into recession in Australia because population growth is so strong, uh, still running it at uh, probably 2.5%. I mean, they're, they're trying to tell us it's slowing, but it's not not slowing that much. Uh, and so that gives you kind of 2.5% headline GDP um, before you even start. So it would have to be a stonking recession for it to register in the headline number. Um, but which you probably won't, um, may get a negative quarter, but hard to see two in a row. But what we are going to see is terrible per capita growth. We've already been in a per capita recession for 18 months, uh, leading to you know a much looser economy um, and everything around households is going to um, is going to lead this. So uh, <laughs> you know uh, the the upshot is, uh, although Canberra's going to disguise it, in effect, Australia's going to have a hard landing, um, which uh, for the vast majority of Australians, um, uh, uh, and so, you know, I see inflation here absolutely evaporating on the basis of that, whereas, you know, places like uh, the US, you have, have this uh, resilient, Consum <clears throat> consumption and investment that that will um, mean that uh, you know rates will probably, although they'll come down meaningfully, will probably not come down as much. Uh, and so that's probably a good jumping off point to to look at investment implications of. Yeah, if you want to get a quick sales message? Yeah. We'll be back again shortly. If you like what you're hearing but want a low cost passive option. Nucleus Wealth is the first to offer passive direct indexing in Australia. The first generation of passive investing was index funds. The next gen was ETFs. Now direct indexing is here with significantly more customization and control. The bed of direct indexing is you can add or subtract investment themes, and we have almost 100 different options to choose from. For example, you could buy an international share direct index portfolio that excludes fossil fuels and arms manufacturers and has a tilt towards cybersecurity and cloud computing. Alternatively, you could buy a portfolio with no screens and an extra exposure to nuclear power and defense contractors. You can find out more at nucleuswealth.com. Now back to the show. Right, so back to uh, investment implications, Dave. Yeah, so uh, I mean, because I see the RBA cutting harder, I, I see the RBA doing a hard pivot over the next quarter uh, and cutting in Q2. Um, I don't think anybody's got that forecast out there yet. Most people are looking at Q3, but uh, I do think the economy is in a bit of trouble. So, uh, and I just don't think inflation is going to be the issue. It'll be growth um, instead. And 
And so uh, I, I was there hard RBA pivot and uh, uh, um, deeper cuts than anyone expects for Australia. Um, so that's obviously a, uh, a ripe environment bonds. Uh, it's it's not going to be a, a healthy environment for the Australian dollar. I thought, you know, I've had a forecast of around 70 cents before the year is out based on, on US easing largely and a falling US dollar. Uh, but I think that that, uh, that narrative has, has been, um, is obsolete now. Um, the U.S. is holding up better than I thought. It does look like it's entering what is a new credit cycle as well. Uh, I do think it's going to slow, yes, but not as much as Australia. I think it's like Australia is going to slow harder and faster and cut more. So, uh, and then on top of that, you know, you have this relentless Chinese, Chinese bear market uh, in everything. China, um, which is going to eat everything China um, progressively over time. And so I expect that to get worse, not better for Australia and its terms and trade as, as sort of steel inputs come into it. Might, might be by mid-year, might be next year. I don't know, but it's coming. And I think from that perspective, it's worth noting on the China is that uh, a lot of Chinese, a lot of commodities exposed to China have already come down significantly yeah. so copper lithium um you know all these all these ones that come through and, and australia's big producer in a lot of these but when you look at um say let's say lithium for example uh australia is one of the largest producer in the world but lithium compared to the amount of coal or the amount of iron ore that australian australia exports is is a drop in the bucket and so while i guess a lot of the minor minerals and a lot of the you know, the peripheral ones have all come down so australia's getting making less money from that Really, what matters to the Australian government in terms of revenue is coal and iron ore. And coal um, prices are still, while while they've come down for the four hundred dollars, they're still double what they they, they typically are. They are. And Calvin coal is still like three forty. It's still very high. Yeah. So, and, no, and, they're, they're, these prices are, have priced none of the town the Chinese downside risk. They, yeah. In fact, they are they are bubble prices in the circumstances. Mm. Uh, yeah. Quite right. So so that's. When we're referencing back to the Australian dollar and the seventy dollar forecast. I abandoned that this morning. I, you know, I'm, I'm just saying range trading now from sixty five, sixty seven, sixty eight. But the down, the risks are down to the downside. I think now, you know, once the RBA is forced to pivot, then then the Aussie dollar. If you know, I can see a scenario, maybe not the base case yet, but not that far away where, where the RBA cuts before the Fed. Um, and that would, the, the, you know, the AUD would just fall out of bed if that happens. Um, so the risks of the AUD, AUD, I think, are now to the downside. Uh, we've got a fantastically useless bubble going into the ASX on, on the prospect of this easing where, you know, you've got, you've got, Commonwealth Bank trading on twenty-one times forward earnings, which is the same as Google, uh, and and so you know is Commonwealth Bank part of the Mag Seven now? <laughs> like it's just, you know, or it's the Mag Eight when we include CBA. Like makes no sense whatsoever. Um, like okay, the banks are strong in legacy terms and things, but their yields have collapsed, and you know that if the RBA is forced to cut as much as I think, then uh, they're going to see margin pressure, uh, so I wouldn't be touching that bank bubble. And obviously, with China heads or uh, headwinds, I wouldn't be looking at the Aussie miners either, which are almost 
you know, equally uh, inflated versus the global peers because iron ore's been so strong. But I, I just think that's a complete head fake. So um, I wouldn't be touching this inflated ASX. Uh, I, pro, you know, if you're looking at going for stocks, I'd be going offshore and playing the AUD or even shorting the ASX here. And I think because because the RBA is forced to cut into this consumer recession, that's what it is. Uh, if not a headline one, then uh, I think property, which has been stalling for the last kind of six months, uh, you know, probably takes off again. Uh, and you know, in a sense, that's yeah. Well, without making a value judgment about it in generational terms or in, in any in any terms that really matter. That's what the property market needs. It's higher prices to deliver a supply response so that the current um, building crunch ends and can start to catch up to population growth. Um, and so we'll probably see something along those lines happen when the RBA starts to cut and cuts deeper than most people think. Uh, and so <clears throat> there, you get, there you have it. Um, Australian inflation is fixed. Mm -hmm. Now that's... I should I should say uh, the elbow inflation component, by the way, I expect to, to continue to be strong. So I'm not saying you know, and, and inflation probably will be higher than it was pre-pandemic. But you know, we have a two to three percent target versus two in most jurisdictions, so we can have slightly stronger inflation, uh, and the RBA can still cut. So I mean, I can see the RBA cutting to two percent within eighteen months, two years. Mm. Yeah, just a quick, quick question for uh, for everyone, anyone out there. Question of the week: uh, Will the inflation pendulum swing too far? Uh, be interested to see you know, your chance to have some some thoughts in the comments. Uh, we do have a question in from Ben. Just a quick uh, reminder for anyone as well: anyone listening in who wants to uh, wants to drop in a question, just drop it in the uh, the chat box below. Uh, so yeah, Ben is asking. Uh, he's saying last week we we're talking about the outflows from China and where do we see those those outflows going and what what effect will they have on Australia? Well, it's, it's talking investment outflows, I'm pretty sure we're talking about in terms look, of look. The outflows are thankfully uh, a lot of it is is more um, institutional capital. Um, in, in this round, like when we saw this in the sort of 2015-16 practice run, a lot of it was private savings, and that's that's when we saw the flood of that money into Australian property. Uh, now, that has started again, but it's nowhere near as heated as it was back then because China has closed its capital account uh, for those, for, for anyone who's not filthy rich. And so uh, I don't think we'll see that kind of flow of Chinese money into the real estate, although it is certainly back, but not like it was back in those days. Um, and so it's probably more a marginal increase factor than it was then, which was more of a driver. Um where else would it go? Well, hilariously, it's going into the U.S. stock market as well, as um, you know, China's Chinese punters rather sensibly bet on a U.S.-led future, uh, and so they're chasing the Mag Seven like everybody else, and AI and U.S. leadership across various industries. Uh, certainly, the Chinese ball of money is playing a role in that in that uh, you know uh, extraordinary rise. But uh, I mean. Where else will we see it? I mean, on all on all kind of asset markets, I guess. But probably the key is that it's inst largely institutional money this time. So, uh, if you're looking for 
private investors having effects, uh, it, 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 it's not going to be like it was in 2015, which is a good thing. Excellent. Thanks, Dave. Look, if you uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, then um, you know hit like and subscribe. Uh, you can follow us on uh, you know, YouTube live every week at at uh, twelve thirty on Thursdays, uh, Sydney Australia, Sydney or, or Melbourne time. Uh, if you uh, are looking for us on podcasts, we're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much all major and minor podcast platforms. Uh, we've got a bunch of social media links up there. Feel free to, to jump on those. And if you've got a a uh, guest or a topic suggestion you'd like, then drop it into the comments and we'd, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for everyone and we'll uh, catch everyone next week. Thank you. Thanks, Dave.